Welcome to Men Are Nuts, a podcast about mental health, psychological health, physical health, emotional health awareness in men, women and society. First, it started with men. The acronym for Men Are Nuts. And we have a very special guest on the show for you today. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me, Andy. My name's Deanne Walsh. Deanne. And I've got a company called Dewa Consulting. Right, so Deanne, whereabouts, whereabouts are you? I'm in Merseyside in the UK, so oh, somewhere actually... between Manchester and Liverpool. So you're actually in Merseyside? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh, here's me rambling on about Liverpool and that. <laughs> of course, it's all yep. right. Why don't you turn like that and nodding and smiling? And, and, <laughs> so, you're, you're, you're on the Mersey? Yes. Right, okay. So, let's let, yep. tell, the, tell the listeners out there about um, where, Mer- where the Mersey where side is, where the Mersey is, and Liverpool and all those things, yep. and what's it like to, to live there? Okay, so um, Merseyside is in northwest England, yeah. and we're about an hour from the Lake District, which is one of our national parks. So we're on the coast, we've got beautiful views. We're about an hour from North Wales, so we've got access to mountains and sea and, you know, lots of lovely countryside around us. We're about 30 minutes away from Manchester, which is a home of another couple of good football teams. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Liverpool is just a beautiful city, lots of history, lots of lovely buildings, um, 20,000 students, so very diverse culture in Liverpool, yeah. um, and some real comedians, some yes. good characters. <laughs> I know there is. I know um, Liverpool produces some of the, the, in fact, they do produce the, the best comedians, to be honest. I mean, the, the sense of humour is brilliant. Um, so yeah. you're, you don't see, uh, you don't have an accent, or is it not coming? Is it? No. What's what's happened? Were you born? So there? I was brought up in uh, Warrington, which is about twenty miles away from Liverpool. Yeah. So it's it's quite a neutral accent, but I do have the odd word that will come out that <laughs> will be particularly scouts. Yeah. <laughs> <Make> you <do>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Warrington. I know. Um, I say I know it well. I remember uh, back in the day, uh, we used to travel from Nottingham and go to. There's a club there called Mr Smiths. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know. And we used, to, we used to be getting home at, gosh, when it used to close, what time did it used to close? About two, three o'clock, and then we used to be getting home. I used to, yeah. I used to be the driver, and I used to be getting home maybe. Um, gosh, it used to take about three hours to get home from Nottingham. Um, yeah, gosh, I used to be getting home at seven o'clock and you know, I had to go to work at eight. So it was a bit, a bit crazy, a crazy night. So yeah. Um, and so you're from you're from Warrington, um, and now you're in the Mersey, not in the Mersey. Yeah. Mersey, there's a big river. It's Mersey, it's Mersey side, obviously the big river. The river Mersey, yeah. yeah. The Mersey there, yeah. I know the song yeah. well, very across the Mersey. Um, That's it. <laughs> so are you are you a supporter of the, any of the clubs there, or are you a, football, a Liverpool supporter or Everton supporter? Or? No, I have been to Liverpool ground a couple of times, so I've seen a game there and I've, I've been to a couple of events there, but I'm not really a, a football or rugby fan. Oh, right. Okay. Um, yeah. So what's your tip on sports, if, 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 you, if you do have one? Um, for me, I do boot camp. I do a ladies' boot camp, an outdoor run by ladies. So not quite as bad as military, you know, the military fitness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the barking orders at you is a little bit more genteel than that, so... <laughs> I heard the accent there, genteel. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I heard that there. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're, 
you're from the Mersey and you're here on the podcast and we, you know, we're talking about mental health. How are things at the moment with um, your, would you say, mental health in terms of what's happening with the, the virus thing? Yeah, so Liverpool were the first city to go into tier three lockdown. So we had the highest numbers in our area. So leading the way in terms of, you know, we need to get these numbers down. You're going to have the highest restrictions. Of course, as of tomorrow, we've got full national lockdown in England. So we've got almost two camps at the moment. And, you know, I'm seeing from friends and family and connections some people are very resistant to the whole situation it's like look we've just got to live our lives and other people are quite frightened um and and really want the restrictions to be able to get the numbers down and feel safe again so it's definitely impacting everybody i think in terms of mental health we've got the isolation so we can't see friends family loved ones we can't do whatever our normal coping strategies are so talking about boot camp boot camp can't go ahead gyms are closed we can't go for a meal, can't go in somebody else's house or garden. So we lose all those connections, we lose all those support mechanisms. So it is difficult, um, and particularly in the UK now because we've got darker nights, it's getting cold. So earlier in the year when we first had lockdown and we were able to go out into the parks and sit in the gardens and you've got all that vitamin D and natural sunshine, it makes such a difference to what we're going into now which is cold, wet, dark. Yeah, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I remember hearing about the, the Liverpool thing. I know just yesterday I, I saw saw an article where um, there's a, uh, I think it, the guy went, there's a national news or something, then it wasn't national news, but he, he seemed to have gone viral. This guy who, um, he owns a gym there, I can't remember his name. He's, he owns a gym and he opposed, apparently some people, the police turned up with guns at his gym in Liverpool, yeah. and he he refused to 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 lock down his you know close his gym, um, and so he he was taught he was on an article and he was talking about that some of the um, some of the is it the is it the, do you have is it the mayor or whoever it is of Liverpool is yes. actually opposing some of the things and he's doing a good job of or they're doing a good job of trying to oppose the government in certain restrictions and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so because we were the first, the rules kind of changed as the other cities came into Tier 3. So they told us gyms had to close. And obviously we all know the, you know, the well-being benefits of going to the gym. So there were a group of gym owners that said, no, we're not going to. And there was £10,000 fines imposed, but they had crowdfunding. So people were supporting them staying open yeah. and they were paying the fines to be able to stay open and then they would get fined again. But then as the other regions joined us and were allowed to keep their gyms open, they fought to get that reversed and to get the gyms reopened in Liverpool. So we've had a couple of weeks of them being reopened, but now back into the national lockdown, they've all had to close again. Yeah, it's crazy stuff that's going on. And it, yeah. I'm sure on the article it said something like... Um, it's actually it's absolutely madness what the government are doing because in terms of things like the gyms and things like that they they there's no there's been no kind of case to say that um, this virus is in the gyms or it affects you know in the gyms walking around in the gyms doing weight, doing weights um, there's no there's there's been none of it so 
um, and even in, in some of the hospitality stuff, there's no, there's been no, it's like not point something percent of, uh, so yeah. there's, there's some, there's, there's something amiss. Um, so you, we're here, to, we're here to talk about, um, mental health and how, for you, what was, what was, what was things like being for you as a person, as, as Deanne growing up? Okay, so growing up, my parents are still together. So I grew up in a very traditional household, quite strict. Um, I've got a brother and sister who are 10 years younger than me. So I was an only child for 10 years, then they had twins. Um, Grew up in a small village, so it was village school, onto high school, good education. Chose not to go to university. So got my first job at 18 and, and worked in many different roles and parts of industry um, until three years ago when I went self-employed. So we have very little contact with mental ill health. I think we were very privileged. You know, we, my dad was a builder. My mum didn't work, so we had mum at home all the time. Dad earned the money. We were very protected from all of the, the worldly troubles. Um, so my first introduction to mental ill health was about seven or eight years ago yeah. and it was a real eye-opener you know I didn't know that people experienced such problems and and had to live with them yeah and what was it what was uh, when you was 18 you said you you didn't go to university that you wanted to do what what were the was there any was there anything that you wanted to do grow you know growing up I mean, you, you you know you like you say your mum stayed at home and you, your dad went to work yeah. but was there anything that you wanted to do or you or you, you just thought, I'll, I'll try different things? I really wanted to do psychology. I've always been interested in why people do things. So, you know, we're all very different. We all make very different choices and, and get different outcomes, but it's always been the why that interested me. Yeah. So I was due to go to university to study German and psychology and then met a boy and decided not to go. Yeah. Um, and instead went working for a German company, but it's always kind of persisted. So I've had an ongoing need to learn. So I've done lots of qualifications and courses throughout my life. Um, and it's funny that having met this person who first introduced me to mental Ill health, I then got into counseling and got into support and, and predominantly now working in awareness raising. Yeah. So I've, I've ultimately ended up where I was meant to be, you know, helping people and, and understanding a little bit more about the whys. So when you went, so when you was going through those different jobs, were you, there's, there's different, um, those would have been character building. So do you, do you look back now and think, um, when you were at the time, do you think you were, you were never meant to be in those jobs and now you kind of end up where you are? I think we all go on the journey we're meant to go on. Um, it's made me who I am. So the people I've met along the way, the jobs, the adversity, I've been made redundant five times um, and, and my view on life now is that there's always something else around the corner. I've never gone to a job that I've regretted. I've always learned something, I've always met nice people and, and stayed in touch with a lot of them. So I think it's all just been part of the journey to bring me to where I am and, and how I'm able to help other people now. Yeah, yeah. And um, so were some of those jobs, what you were doing, were some of the jobs involved was it, were they involved, was there care involved in that or was it just something completely separate and then something's brought to you to where you are now? 
Because I always find there's a, there's yeah. a light bulb moment for somebody along that journey. Yeah. So early years was um, very much admin based. So it was all office, working with sales, purchasing data, projects, um, until the point where I joined a smaller business as office operations manager. And that's when I really started to do the HR aspect. Yeah. So I've been in HR now for 15 years. And that's where the caring side came out because I was then supporting other people. So I'd done it a little bit through line management in previous roles. But when you're in HR and people are bringing their problems to you and, you know, you're in a position to support and, and advise, that's when it got really interesting. So, you know, I went off and did all the qualifications and, as I say, got into counselling at that point, a combination of what was happening for me personally and what I was coming across in a business sense. And I just didn't want to do any harm where I'm talking to people about things that are deeply personal, emotional, um, you know, and, and can have a real impact on somebody's life. I wanted to know I was helping them in the right way. Yeah. So um, I did the counselling qualification and then came across MHFA, which is, is about raising awareness. And I thought, well, actually, rather than treat people at the end, um, although that's really important and they still got a part of my life, if I can raise awareness and prevent somebody getting to that point, if I can prevent them needing time off sick or prevent them getting to a point where they're becoming unwell and it's affecting the physical health, that's absolutely where I want to be. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, you've, you've obviously, because often we forget about, because you just said something really um, striking there, is that we often forget about HR where we see them as, um, we see HR as as part of a business and it's and they're the ones that come to you or you go to them to, to do with the business thing but quite often you can end up having conversations with them and getting quite uh, close because they're the ones that are maybe know a bit more than you about your life than anyone else in the company yeah so i think for me and i've done a lot of training with hr managers over the last few years we used to go into disciplinary meetings and we'd know nothing about what was going on for somebody. And the number of meetings I've sat in where somebody's disclosed something at that point, and you're like, but if we'd known earlier, we could have helped. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's something that's going on in the personal life or financial worries or health worries. And people will either be very private or they'll feel guilty or ashamed and won't want to tell you. They want to just carry on and do the best they can. But ultimately it affects your performance because we can't leave any part of ourselves at home when we go to work. Yeah. You know, it's part of who we are and it does impact. So for me, and, and what I always tell the HR managers I work with now, it's about having that conversation before you start any kind of process. Because we can understand, we can take it off the table um, and we can then just talk about what they need in terms of support and address any disciplinary issues later when they're in a better position to be able to handle it or not at all yeah, yeah. because we'll have helped them perform better by understanding what the restrictions are so do you think that that's the way because because I, you know what i said earlier about hr is seen as quite often it's seen as that's the business end or part of the business end do you think that's a, a um the way for it to go then most hrs or hrs in in business should be going that way do you think they should be going that way i think if businesses have got a well-being people-centric culture that's absolutely how it should be we've obviously got some that are very corporate and HR is about protecting the business and it's about managing 
the legislation and, and uh, you know, making sure that they're not culpable for anything. Where actually, in my view, we need to care for the people because the people are doing the jobs and making the money for the business. Yeah, exactly. So if we can put the people first and if HR can then be that support role, then that really helps everybody in the longer term. where the money is in a sense and quite often those people quite they said that quite often those people with who are earning the, you know the large amounts and in, in the kind of hectic corporate world some of those are, are those are ones that crash and burn in terms of yeah mental mental health um because they're not quite there's so much pressure being put on them yeah it's work pressure and then home and, and sometimes it's just drinking coffee all day and not eating and and quite often it's those people that they become insecure because they've got they've got all this money earning it, but there's nothing. Yeah. There's no one at home even sometimes. Probably no no, yeah. no family members. They're on their own. Um, so you you definitely say that's definitely the way. I would say you agree with you. That's definitely the way to go. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the the the, the incident where you fir- first kind of came across um, uh, mental health and and or we all are mental health, but. I think the mental health issue or problem yeah so I was dating and I met this guy and he was lovely and he brought flowers and we had a lovely couple of dates and in a very short space of time he started saying some really odd things yeah. so he'd say the rug's moved who's been in nobody's been in sometimes things just get moved you've lost an earring what's been going on it was very suspicious and of course when you're dating you don't really know people you don't know what the history is and a couple of weeks later he started um saying things like i know you've been taking drugs i could see you through the window i've never taken drugs and i just didn't know how to handle this i mean he's just being ridiculous what why are you saying these things? And what I didn't know is he was starting to become psychotic. He disclosed to me that he's got paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, and these were signs of him going into a, a psychosis. So I didn't know. I didn't understand. I didn't know what to do. A couple of weeks further forward, he's having suicidal thoughts. We had the police involved. He was in touch with um, his crisis team to the point where I got a phone call from the crisis team one evening to say that me and the children were in danger, that he'd said something, he'd disclosed something in a session. And because I knew nothing about, you know, this kind of illness and, and what I could do, and I moved house. I walked away because I was scared. I was scared for me and the family. I didn't know how to help him. I didn't know how serious that risk was. And I essentially walked away from it. I'd actually only known him start to finish eight weeks. His deterioration was that rapid. It's because he'd come off his medication, which again, I didn't know. So I'm very well aware now that when it's managed, when you're taking your medication, when you're following your treatment plan, when you're in touch with your, your support team, you can live very well with schizophrenia, bipolar, all of these illnesses. But because he'd not taken care of himself, he deteriorated very rapidly. Um, So I look back now with a lot of guilt associated with that because I didn't know and I was scared. 
And of course, we've got the media, you know, the media talks about these kind of illnesses in the way that, you know, people do go off and kill people and people go and hurt people when they're in this state. And, and that's what I bought into because I knew no different. be able to in that sense you'll be able to tell unless because you're starting to meet somebody you're starting to date so you're starting to find out things about them and and there's no way you could you, you could tell you know when you said just then you said guilt what what's where does it what's the guilt what's what's the thing that you feel about guilt again again it's with hindsight i couldn't possibly have known them because i didn't have the education and mental health that i've got now but it ha- had it happened to me in the future I would have recognised the warning signs. I'd have seen the paranoia. I'd have seen the signs of hallucinations and delusions. And I'd have stepped in and suggested that he got in touch with his crisis team, that there was support earlier. Because that early intervention may have prevented him being sectioned, which is where he ended up. It may have prevented him having the kind of conversations he had that got in the way of, of you know, my life and, and our relationship, which possibly could have been different. It's the fact I didn't help him because I didn't know how to. Yeah. And, and, well, I mean, I would say with that, I mean, if you didn't know something, it's it's then... I know I could totally get what you mean because you've actually met somebody and you, you're liking this person and so you're going to be feeding something. And even, and even if it's someone that you, you didn't, even if it's someone that you wasn't in a relationship but you met him and as a friend, you're still going to be feeling a little bit guilt that you didn't help them. But you... Yeah. I always think that if it's, I know because we have this human trait, but it's hard. It's do you know what I mean? It, it, you you couldn't if because you, you didn't know. It's it's yeah. You couldn't help if you understand what I mean. There's no way you could help. So that's that's a we're on a double-edged sword there where we where where our minds go. Um, when you when you um, when you first started to do these things. Um, you you obviously questioned why he was saying it um yeah and looking back you obviously saw that there would have been signs there and some of the things that he was saying and things like that um in terms of him going downhill was it a rapid obviously eight weeks but was it was it is that sort of thing that happens when they come off the medication is it a rapid thing i think it depends on the individual because depending on the severity. Some schizophrenics only have one episode in their entire life. Others will have repeated and it'll be a a really deep cycle. So it does depend on on what the medication was, how long they've been on it, how long they've been off it and and how they are as an individual. Again, if somebody's, you know, taking really good care of themselves physically and has only been off for a few weeks, it might not have the same impact as somebody who's not be taking care of themselves in terms of diet and exercise and mood journaling and things because there's something about that disassociation when you're mentally unwell that you don't realize how far you're slipping so things like mood journaling is really important to think oh actually i've had three or four days in a row that's not good i need to do something different yeah Yeah. and so when you when you um found out that he was how you know when you how did you find out that he was going to schizophrenia? Was it were you told it um, by his carer and and at that time did you know what schizophrenia was when you were told it? I didn't know. So he told me himself he was having um, an episode, 
Um, so he was drinking and we were on a, we were actually on a Zoom call um, and he was telling me what was going on for him and he said, I need to let you know more about me. And he told me some stuff about his past, which I now don't know whether was true or not because of the state he was in. Yeah. But he did say to me, you know, I'm paranoid schizophrenic. I know I'm becoming unwell and I'm going to go and get treatment. And unfortunately he didn't. So we'd made arrangements. I was going to look after his dog. He was going to go off and see the team. And he, he rang me the same day and he went, I'm, I'm not going. I, f I feel okay today. I'm not going. Mm. So, you know, he recognised it, but then didn't want to, to access that support for whatever reason. Yes. So I went off and just Googled it to understand more about it. And again, particularly the paranoid schizophrenia, it is seeing those warning signs yeah, yeah. and thinking, well, yeah, it all makes sense now. Quite often, do you know? Did you know what, what paranoia? Not did you know exactly what it was, but when you heard the word before or those words before paranoia schizophrenia, did it? As it in the past brought up, what sort of connotations it brought up? And I think what I'm trying to get to that is, quite often we hear these things, and we can be alarmed. So when we when yeah. when we get somebody that's close to us or or someone that we know and we hear that, we can kind of go, whoa, is that how it was? For you? I think so, because as I say, I'd not grown up being in contact with a lot of mental illness. Yeah. So I only knew what I knew from the media, from movies, and it's so over-dramatised and it's so extreme. Um, so not understanding that it can be well-managed and can be, you know, we can support. It's always like, well, obviously it's going to be dangerous. That's automatically where my mind went. Um, so, you know, I, I did, as I say, I've got a friend who's in mental health and I spoke to her and she kind of gave me some, some ideas of how to manage it. And she just said, try and give him some space, but stay in touch because he needs support. Yeah. So he needs somebody that's, that's almost watching out for him. Um, and that's what I did until the point where we had that disclosure. And at that point he was sectioned anyway, so he was in a safe space. So how, how when, when he was sectioned, is that was that was was that when the guilt kind of kicked in, or, or was it because you'd already got help in a sense by t asking him to go and get help? Um, at what point did the guilt um, kick in? The guilt's really only come since I've started my own training. Yeah. So for a while, I was angry. Mm. I was angry that he put me in that position. I was in a house that I loved. It unsettled my children. Yeah. Um, it affected my son's mental health um, because he was at the age where he knew what was going on and couldn't prevent it. Um, he couldn't interject and it was difficult for him. So, you know, I was, I was angry with him and it's only since I've understood more about it that the guilt set in because I've seen how I could have helped. And that's why it's important for me to raise awareness because there's lots of people needing help that don't know they need it and people don't know how to offer help. And you're, so it's kind of those things that, um, kind of those, like you say, your past and your, you, the things that you've gone through now brings you to where you are, in, to where you, what you're doing now. Um, yeah. Do you think that, do you think even that episode there was a, was a kind of a turning point or a trigger for you to say, you know what, I need to, to, to um, maybe help others? Yeah, in, definitely not contributed. HR, not in a HR setting. Yeah. So I knew 
once I had got past my anger and you know I got my life back on track um, I knew that I wanted to be able to help in some way I didn't know how so I looked at various forms of volunteering etc and then you know when I came across counselling so that's five years ago now so there's a couple of years gap and then you know, started the counselling training, did volunteer counselling, so I've volunteered for Childline, um, I'm volunteering at the moment for Shout Crisis Text Line, yeah. um, and being able to support, so I've had people on who were in the same situation he was in, and being able to support them and, and you know, signpost them to get help has really helped me to move on. Yeah, yeah. and I was going to say that to you as well, because even though you he said you've guilt so this doing this is almost like a cathartic way of kind of yeah. ridding yourself of of that guilt and even though you the person's been sectioned you know would they be in section if they'd met you or not you know who knows but what it, this kind of goes a long way to kind of bridging that gap and helping you to kind of come to terms with what happened in a sense um, by helping others, maybe, like you say, even in a similar situation to maybe what you was in. Um, yeah. So um, tell us about some of those organisations and what they do and for people who don't know those organisations. Okay, so Childline is a support service, a telephone support service for young people under 18. And it can be anybody through from five, six years old, right up to, to the age of 18. And they, there's a the special helpline number that they can call. It was very heavily promoted in the UK when it was started about 30 years ago. Um, and it's just a service who will listen. And it was really interesting, some of the calls we got, being a parent and how I've dealt with them. Now I'm trained to how I dealt with things as a parent. Because we forget how important things are to little ones. You know, a child's been on the phone sobbing because the best friend has said they don't want to speak to them anymore. And you know that they're going to go in the following day and everything will be absolutely fine. And that's what the parents will say because that's what we do as parents. But as somebody on the end of the phone saying, well, tell me what's happened and then explain to me and what do you think you could do tomorrow and calming them down to the point where they feel okay about going in. That's really important. You know, and it's everything through then to abuse and suicide, runaways. You know, we've had all kinds of experiences with young people on the phone. And they're all crying out for help in their own way and and either can't explain to somebody they're close to or aren't getting the support from the people they're close to. So it's a service that will listen without judgment and just offer support and advice for them. Um, And And then... um, Yeah, so Shout the Crisis Text Line is a service where if you can't speak, either because of a disability or because you're too upset, or particularly at the moment if there's somebody else in the house and you want to talk about something that's private, it's like instant messaging. So you can message the chat line and volunteers like myself are on the other end. And again, we support in the same way, but this is an adult service. Do deal with some young people, but predominantly adults. Um, supporting with everything from meeting disorders, abuse, neglect, um, fear about current situation, anxiety about exams or job or finances. 
So it's, it's a really good service if you're very emotional and can't speak to one of the other primary volunteer services. Yeah. And during that, I was going to, just going to go back for a minute before we talk about your, your, what you do, your business, and away from those other, um, other charities, business, yeah, charities. Yeah. Um, what was you, you must have been, um, because the moving and everything else, how was your mental health affected? Because now we can go back to that now. How do we, how yeah. was it affected and how did you, how did you cope with the things that were going on? So that's probably the lowest I've been. Yeah. Um, I'm naturally quite a resilient person, talked a lot about job changes. I've been through two marriage breakups, you know, I, I, I naturally see the positive in things. Yeah. Um, so I think that helped, but definitely that's, I did, I, I found it difficult to sleep. I found it difficult to concentrate. Um, I took a week off work because I needed to sort my life out. I needed somewhere to live. I needed to get everything moved out of the house, etc. Um, so it was, it was very challenging and, and not knowing where it had come from as well. It's that not knowing the why again. Um, you know, I, I really struggled with not being able to, to understand what just happened. It was all so quick. But, you know, within a very short space of time, I've got some really good friends who I can sit and talk to um, and support me very well. Um, and I found a house and I found a job because I, I, I didn't say I'd been made redundant on the same day I got the warning from mental health services. So, you know, everything was literally, everything was up in the air, but it all worked out. I made great friends at the new job. It led me on to my new career and, you know, all good things came out of it. You just dropped it in there that um, I didn't tell you that the job I'd lost my job and you made redundant. You basically been made redundant. So do you, there's a word there and it keeps coming up, um, and I'm sure people aren't you know aren't listening to the last podcast, the last episode, and to pick up that word. But there's a word that's coming out and it begins with R and that's a resilient. Um, yeah. And it came up last night in last night's podcast episode, and it's come up again um, in terms of your resilience. So so. The things that you obviously then the things that you'd gone through kept you and also maybe having having your, your kids um, is another factor in, this, in terms of what kept you sane in a sense or kept you intact. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes if you're on your own, you can become a little bit insular yeah. um, and you get in your own head a little bit too much. Obviously, when you've got children, you've got to put them first. You've got to make sure they're OK. Um, and to some degree you put a brave face on you just get on with it and do it um, and that almost carries you forward yeah. and then as I say in, in my down moments I've got really good friends who just let me talk and explore what was going on in my head yeah. um, and, and gave me physical support in terms of well I'll help you move I'll help you decorate whatever it may be yeah. so you know it's I, that's really important for me my network um, family and friends are really important yeah. I know I know this times of the essence at the moment because see, well, we can always do this we're going to do another episode um, the set part two or you know an, an advance of just can you give them a brief um, outline of now you started your own business how do you start it and what your yeah. business is so my business is a mental health and well-being consultancy so it came from bringing all elements of my my work life together actually so the counseling the HR and then the, the MHFA training, mental health first aid training, because I want other people to be able to support within their businesses 
anybody who's not coping I want them to first of all understand who's not coping and why and how they can support and then educate the individuals so that they're looking after one another so I run awareness sessions for individuals I run training for HR managers people managers business owners um, in terms of how they look after the staff what the legal implications are um, around the Equality Act and disability around mental health because there's just a lot of misunderstanding Yeah. We'll, we'll go on. We'll go in depth on with this when we do the part two. We'll go in depth about your business because that's really. I really want you to plug that and really go in depth. Maybe fifteen minutes, ten minutes, however long to okay. talk about your business. Um, where can you be found then to 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 be con- if you want if people can contact you with social media websites yeah. or wherever. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, Tian Walsh. Um, I've got my own website, Dewa Consulting, D E W A Consulting dot co dot UK. Yeah. On Twitter, DW52151, um, and Instagram, Dewa Consulting. Thank you, thank you for coming on. Have you got any jokes for us? No, thank you. Any any Liverpool jokes for us? Oh, no, I'm rubbish at jokes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get one for next time. (laughs) Thank you for coming on, and and like I said, we'll do it again as soon as possible, okay? Look forward to it. Thanks, Andy. No problem. Take care. And that, you too. Speak to you soon.